to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, nobody. He's like a poor man's uh, Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> How so? Well, he's had like three or four of these books, and if you read it, if you if you've ever read any of Malcolm Gladwell's mm-hmm. books, it is very much the exact same writing style of hey, here's a social <clears throat> science concept. And here's this really interesting story about the social science concept. And I'm going to oversimplify it and remove any of the complexity. Yeah. But guess what? 10,000 hours is going to change your life. You get what I'm saying? This is, this is exactly what people analytics need or IO in general. It's what uh, economists have that we are missing is this sort of uh, marketing arm that's overly simplified, not overly, but simplified and digestible to people so that they understand. My mom still says that I do the I and the O. You know, (laughs) (laughs) oh my god, you know, I just remembered what's up. You remember after we post the first podcast, and for like five minutes, you thought that Adam Grant Grant had liked it? it, it, it. (laughs) (laughs) I I like to think he did. I like to think he did. He did not, actually, he did not, but it was a fun five minutes. We're like, oh my god, our first episode, this podcast is gonna blow up, man. I I like to think that uh, I have a mental link to Adam Grant, he was thinking about us in that moment. (laughs) All right, well, let's get this thing yeah, started. Um, welcome to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott. Scott, who's our guest today? <laughs> Nobody. Yeah. That's how, but we, I, you are. You are. Or I'm your guest, actually. You are the guest in my humble abode. So if for those of you, if you can't tell from, I don't know how the audio is working, Scott and I are actually together in person today. Yeah, we should probably check and see if like the audio is actually running. Um, I assume it's running. We had to turn down our headphones because like, there's some sort of technical debt going on here. Let's just assume it's running, Scott. Well, yeah. I mean, like, Cole and I have already been talking for, what, like two hours now before this? Yeah, we may, we may have already exhausted all the topics today. That's but fair. Uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting dynamic because, first of all, you know, usually we're on Zoom and... And it's really great to see in person. I know it's kind of like weird that we're like saying since we have been talking for two hours, but it's really good to see you, man. <laughs> it was good to see you too. I, I love your uh, Louisiana Tech bulldog on your front porch. That's how I knew which house was yours. I Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. How would you know you're in the right place? <laughs> well, there's a big Louisiana Tech bulldog on the front porch. You get your kids downstairs. Uh, hopefully they can make an appearance later. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, they're crying will likely make an appearance <laughs> on the podcast in the background at some point because we've already heard it multiple times during this conversation we've been having. So, yeah, well, this is great. Well, Scott, what are you what are you doing in Texas? I am uh, fresh off a European adventure, uh, finally back in the States. You know, uh, it, it, it's so hard being in the States, like all of our fans everywhere. You can't walk out the door without being hounded for autographs. You know how it is, Cole. <laughs> I know very much about how influential our podcast oh, is. Oh, all this these point. like teeny boppers, you know, just constantly hounding you for the people analytics advice. Oh, clearly, right? Yeah, I mean, we have put people analytics on the map. That is for sure. You, they say that you know, Scott, you're the John Lennon, and I'm the whoever the other guy is in the Beatles of, uh, of people oh, analytics. On, you don't know the Beatles. Uh, what is it? Paul McCartney. Nice. I'm the Paul, Paul McCartney and you're the John Lennon of people analytics now. Yeah. You need Ringo and Harrison, but yeah, well, we're not as popular over there. So it was good to get away. Oh, absolutely. From the paparazzi and all that. Well, so, but, but again, like what, what are you doing in Texas? 
Uh, I am back here visiting the folks. I wanted to come see you and do this in person. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, much easier. It already is much easier, just like being in the same room doing this. It's already um, so much more laid back. Can you tell? Like, I feel like it's so much more laid back just doing it like this. I, I, I've seen some recent, uh, I think it came out of the MIT Media Lab around like Zoom fatigue. And it relates to how close people sit in front of the monitor. I don't know if you hear Cole's kid in the background. I hope you can. He's having a little meltdown. But uh, okay, so people sit at their computers like 14 inches away, mm-hmm. which in normal. Like life, on average? Yeah, yeah. You know, like you sit, uh, you know, maybe 24 inches away. But in normal life, you don't have that sort of space in between two people talking. It'd be a very intimate situation. Yeah, if, you're you're with like a, a lover or something like that if you're that close. You never sit that close, especially for that long. And that's the new sort of theory of why you get like Zoom fatigue, which I find absolutely fascinating. That is interesting. See, I always just thought, I thought a lot about this during the beginning of the pandemic because, again, it was so different mm-hmm. and there was kind of a shock to it. I just thought it was different because you... Like if you were in like a, a meeting in a conference room and let like let's say you had another meeting to go to afterwards, you still probably got out of your chair and like went somewhere else. Whereas oh, on yeah. Zoom, you literally it's like you're watching an eight hour movie because you're you never <laughs> leave your chair unless you happen to go to like the restroom or something like that. I think and that has a physiological effect on you because like you're being a, the 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 work equivalent of a couch potato. Right. Yeah. Like absolutely. if you watch too much Netflix in a row, all of a sudden you start feeling like, ugh, this doesn't feel good, you know. And but you're having the work equivalent of that. Not, Not to, to mention, mention kind of the kind of what you were saying earlier about the audio and the video quality, where the it's I don't know, I don't know what, what to, to say, say physiologically about it, but it's definitely, definitely a diminished type of interaction that you're having because maybe there's a little lag between the audio and the video. Maybe it's like you know you're literally only seeing the upper half of a human being, yeah. but never their lower half, and you know, maybe from a primate part of our brain that's like, <laughs> they like I should I be able, able to see their legs. legs. Why can't I see their legs? I don't know. I mean, there's there's something qualitatively different about it. Did you see the uh, new Malcolm Gladwell uh, statement that he came out and essentially said that uh, it is not in your best interest to work from home? Yeah, yeah, I definitely saw what I saw. Actually, I'm not even sure I I ever saw the original statement. I've seen seen a clip. I've seen a clip that's going around the internet. So I've never even seen the clip. All I've seen is the reaction to the clip. And so people are, yeah, they're just like, Malcolm Gladwell's a hypocrite. And I'm like, well, (laughs) I I thought he was a hypocrite, but for different reasons. Tell me more. You know, so I don't know what, so you actually seen the clip. What happened in the clip? So his clip is essentially him saying that it is not in your best interest to work from home. And he essentially says that, uh, at the house, uh, the, the way it's paraphrased by, say, critics would be that, you know, you're sitting in your pajamas, you're not really interacting with other folks, you're not getting the attention from uh, managers, et cetera, and you're not connected to the other people in the office. I, uh, I, I guess in general terms, you're, you're deriving less meaning, less... Uh, mm, what Purpose or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly, from the job. And... The critics, I've only seen criticisms of his statement and essentially people saying, I'm still productive at the house. You know, I don't have to sit in traffic. Uh, I get to walk my dog. I get better work-life balance and all that's 
yeah. absolutely, absolutely true. I, I kind of see, he didn't say that though. He said, it's not your best interest to work from home. Cause I do believe that people will be overlooked if they are at the house and not at the office. Well, so let, let's, let's do this. Uh, there's a concept. I don't know if you've ever heard of it called steel manning. Ooh, what's this? Um, so it's the opposite of straw manning. Like in the debate, like what I would do is if you made a really valid point, I would make your point back to you, but a really wor- worst version of that point <laughs> so that I could pick on the worst version of your argument. Okay. Steel manning is the opposite. And it's like saying, what's the best version of your argument? So what's, what's the best version of what Malcolm Gladwell is saying from your opinion? The best version of what he's saying is that if you work from home exclusively mm-hmm. that you're missing out on a lot of the positive aspects of being at the office from a psychological standpoint, uh, as far as once again, directly. So what are the positive aspects of being at the office? Well, like one getting ahead, getting attention from the bosses, et cetera, but also just being connected to your coworkers and mm-hmm. uh, the work itself, deriving meaning from the work, all those sort of positive things that we derive from uh, just being not necessarily in the office, but our work in general. Yeah, because I mean, like we spend eight hours a day sleeping. We spend eight hours a day, roughly, working, and you know what? You go home and you watch a couple TV shows. And Let's say eight hours a home. day watching Netflix, like The Lion King. You know, yeah. perhaps with my son. <laughs> yeah. eight, but Lion King on repeat for exactly. eight straight hours. Yeah, exactly. That that that's my impression of what he is saying. But I understand people's standpoint that they. Well, so what's really the, enjoyed the work phone experience? Yeah. So what's the steel man of their argument if they were, were to make one? Well, you, know, you have more time in the day. You have uh, you're just as productive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're getting your work done. You are uh, better work life balance. You don't have to uh, commute in. You know all these sort of things that we know. Yeah. So it sounds like he was sort of making a uh, an enlightened point. Mm-hmm. And people miss the point, which is wh- yeah. whereas they're making a what I might call a defensive point, which is, dude, don't rock the boat. We got a good like from our perspective, we got a good thing going. You know, why are you trying to rock the boat? Because <laughs> yeah, that's people a really good listen point. to you, Malcolm Gladwell. Like my boss is going to listen to you and be like, well, Malcolm Gladwell, you know, said that you need to be in the office 10,000 hours for to be get the <laughs> next promotion, you know, and so. I don't know. I mean, is that is that what they're really afraid of? I mean, like, I, I really can't speak for these folks. I'm just I'm just going back on the criticisms that I've seen, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's true. Uh, people have gotten really used to the work from home experience, and it has its it, it totally has its positive benefits. Yeah. I I work from home a lot as well. I, yeah. I have the luxury of being able to uh, work, say, in Dallas, where I am right now. Uh, but I, it, this concept of the hybrid work environment is going to come up more and more often, and it's something we're going to have to figure out. I think we are. I just what, what frustrates me is when people mention hybrid as if it's the enlightened answer to the <laughs> remote versus in-person debate. It's like, well, what? All we have to do is find the optimum numbers of days a week for people yeah. to be in person. And what that, that misses is any kind of complexity. And what I mean by that is like, well, what if people are in different cities but work together? Does being in a three days in the office help that, that no, team's productivity? Clearly Probably not. not. So, and I think that's becoming more and more the case because what happened realistically 
over the pandemic is most companies, or at least for knowledge workers, they started recruiting nationally instead of locally. And so there are a lot of geographically distributed teams. And so the, the, the normal, and again, they could go, like, if you really wanted to commit to doing in-person work, yeah. you would just do what people had to do before the pandemic, which is you throw out some really crazy lucrative relocation packages, put people in the cities that you want them to live in again, and have them all be in the same place. But that's not what companies are doing right now, at least from what I can tell. No. Um, and Michael Arena, uh, network analysis guru guy, has a uh, new article out on LinkedIn. Maybe we can find it in the show notes. But he essentially talks about this sort of aspect. It is not enough to just, uh, say, come into the office three days a week need to come in at the right times, particularly as it relates to the innovative process. So it's, it's really hard to generate ideas on your own. Obviously, you can go out and read books and stuff, but you really need to go talk to various people and then uh, come back, refine them on your own. But if you just develop an idea and you get this like cool little app or a product of some sort and no one uses it but you, who gives a shit? Like you need to scale it somehow. So you go, you, you need someone else to help you lift it off to the rest of the uh, uh, universe, really. Yeah. Well, I feel like work, work from home or like the future of work, it's kind of been like, like any other topic nowadays where you can find any research that supports your position. Oh, yeah. You know, if you want to choose. The one piece that the way I look at it personally, that I, I don't think I've really seen this in the research at all anywhere is from my personal experience, in-person is a higher variance activity than a remote environment. And what I mean by that is the highs are higher and the lows are lower in person. Interesting. I haven't heard this before. Well, this is, again, this is just my own kind of personal take on it. Whereas remote work seems to be a lower variance activity, meaning where the highs are never quite as high, but the lows are never quite as low because, and this is kind of goes back to the point about, I don't know, the 14 or the 24 inches and all that kind of stuff before. It's just, there's a lower all around quality to it. And therefore, you know, you're not going to get like that super like elation that you might have, but you're also like, let's say you have a tough conversation. It's actually not quite as tough in a remote setting than it would be if you were in person and somebody's like really being harsh on you or something like that. Yeah, I, I could see that. And like the thing about like the positive side, like say your your team lands a client, you land a project, whatever it is, like where do you get freaking high five the wall? I yeah. mean, it doesn't really hit the same way. Well, maybe it, it doesn't even have a sense of closure even. Ooh. And which goes back to the point about meaning. It's like uh, people really, and there's lots of research on this. Yes. People derive a lot of meaning, purpose, and identity from their work, like through their work, it can be a part of like how you even have a community. Like some people don't even have a community in this world other than their workplace. And imagine, you know, you're sitting at home for the last two and a half years and you have no community There, there has to be a qualitative diminishment in your quality of life if you didn't have a pre-existing community to be a part of. But that said, if you did, then you're like, I don't need this community at work. I've got it elsewhere. And so I think there's a lot of kind of like individual differences and totally. lifestyle differences in what affects your work, your work location and how much it means to you personally. Totally. The, the, the pandemic was rough in a lot of ways. Uh, the least of which is not that, or should I say that we, we, we lost a lot of our connections because we didn't like maintain them. You know, it's, it's so easy to go to 
a conference and get a business card. Like, hey, Cole, like, hey, it was great to meet you, get you a business card. But to take that business card home and like schedule a meeting with Cole, that's a huge leap. You know, then to like call you a month from now, that's an even bigger leap. And during the pandemic, you're no longer face to face with people. You're no longer making these connections. People became really withdrawn into their like their small community communities. And they lost all these connections. Yeah. Well, I think it kind of goes back to your point. I love how you, this is real. I might steal this. You, what if you're at home, you're going to high five the wall. Yeah, for real. Right. Like I feel like that's a really great way of capturing what, like what is lost because something is lost. Right. And I think that's what society is having a hard time putting their finger on is what is it that's lost. And, but I think, you know, and again, to, to steel man, the people who were kind of detracting to Adam Grant, they, all they're hearing is society is not acknowledging what has been gained. Yeah. The, the other argument that that's very fair. The other argument uh, that I hear from this group is that, you know, you're a wealthy, rich white guy in your kind of ivory tower, tower that likes to go to the coffee shop in the morning. Then you go home and you write on your computer, but you're telling everyone else that they need to go to the office to get ahead, which, hey, the uh, office, Mal- optics are rough. <laughs> it, I don't even think Malcolm Gladwell's white. Is he not white? I don't even know. I think his parents are black. I want to say I Is heard he? that at one point. I'm not sure if that's true. Somebody needs to fact check that, but I think he's not even white. Okay, you got this uh, black parent guy, but he's, he's a successful author that likes to work alone sure. at the yeah. coffee shop, etc. And he's telling other people, but from, from my perspective, he's just saying, yes, it, but it, it does work in your benefit to go to the office. It seemed like an uncharitable take when yeah. maybe it could have been an enlightened take, right? Yeah. Yeah. I hate to, hate to like make a like do as I say sort of. Not as I do. On him. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that's really what he's getting at, but. Um, yeah. And you, again, to give credit where credit is due, like I got my bones to pick with him, but he's been in one of the greatest publicizers and popularizers of social science research in history. And so I got to, you know, I got to have respect for the guy. Done so much to advance economics. And I think it bleeds over into people analytics mm-hmm. very much so. I mean, absolutely. These are the things that every organization is looking for. These sort of like, oh my God, gut check sort of, insights that we can use well and i mean if you think about it like there's the whole you know uh what's the guy who wrote moneyball Um, oh uh uh billy is billy bean no that's the oakland a's manager look up uh liars poker lewis michael lewis yeah michael lewis so it's it's like you know there's this whole group of people there's like michael lewis who i think came first at um uh, cause he kind of does the social science thing sometimes too. I don't know if you've read any of his other books. Like he read, no, he, he wrote a book on Daniel Kahneman and Tversky's work. Right. I, I'm going to forget what the name of that book is too. Wait, like he so he wrote like a review or like a critique or no, it was like a way of popularizing their ideas, like prospect theory and loss aversion and all that stuff. Thinking fast and thinking slow or is that? No, that was, that was Daniel Kahneman's huh. book. He has his own version. We should probably Google that one too. I'm going to start um, taking other people's ideas and like, Oh, you wrote a kick-ass book. I'm just going to write a kick-ass book on about your idea. Well, that's why I have this theory and it's kind of where we're manifesting it on the podcast where you need two people to do anything. Yes. You need the ideas person. You need the executor. You need the person who's the research scientist and you need the popularizer, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's what, you know, 
you know, Malcolm Gladwell is to quite a few people. That's what Adam Grant is. Cause I'm, I mean, Adam Grant is an established research, you know, uh, researcher, but yeah. most of the ideas that he's putting out there in his books are actually other people's ideas. Have you ever uh, seen the uh, uh, History Channel show, uh, The Food That Built America? No, I have not. It was so the, like each episode, I, I think they did it different by season. It's kind of irrelevant, but they, they like essentially follow like two brands. Those might be like Olympian Subway. Or it might be McDonald's and uh, Lake Wendy's. This sort of Limpy, thing. a brand I haven't <laughs> forgotten about forever ago. It's just not in Texas. It's yeah. not in Texas. But invariably, like you got someone that's like all about like making the money and like we're gonna like scale this thing across the U.S. And you got someone that's like the quality guy, and they're like, whoa, 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 we need to like hold back and uh, keep things tight, make sure that everything's solid before we scale and like every one of these companies has this engine almost invariable it's incredible well it, i think it's incredible because it's necessary yeah like i really do like i don't think it's hard to go one, alone one human being can't be everything to everybody no right and i think you have that kind of duality that exists that helps you know think the yin and the yang if you will if you want to get like philosophical or something like that oh yeah Scott, you're my yang, <laughs> or you're, you're my yin. Well, I mean, we talked about this in the past. Like, we have two different perspectives on people analytics. It, like, uh, I kind of get deep into the data and this sort of stuff, and uh, I won't like. I'll try to fairly characterize you. You you see the bigger picture sort of things, right? I think the biggest thing that I offer is just first of all coming through the school of hard knocks. I think Ooh. is one thing. You know, I, I kind of ridden the wave of people analytics even before it wasn't a thing. But because of that, I think I have a lot of really realistic and pragmatic, but also strategic looks at our field and the future of our field. Well, is that sexy enough? You're just a, uh, uh, oh, what do you call these? Journeyman. A journeyman. I say hipster. You're people analytics hipster. You and you're <laughs> like, now it's not cool anymore. You got to like find something else to do. <laughs> I uh, like all these people love people like i gotta get out of here i never I loved it before it was cool i never would have put it that way but that's a <laughs> that is such and if you you actually ever like see a picture of me or meet me in person you'll know that i'm, I'm like the furthest thing from a hipster but <laughs> i think that's a really good way of putting it scott that's really funny yeah people know you're like more steampunk I'm more steampunk <laughs> no definitely not. i'm more like grown-up emo kid is probably the better way of putting it <laughs> um yeah man well so, so, okay. I asked you a question a long time ago about what, what brought you to Texas, but where you, where were you? Before? Oh yes. So I, I took a, uh, a European adventure. Uh, I went to uh, London first off. I've been to London several times. Absolutely love it. Uh, it's more like visiting other places. Do you watch a uh, Ted Lasso? <laughs> no another you show i have like seen. oh my god i'm telling you we watch eight hours of lion king <laughs> you, okay you got kids <laughs> yeah um, this, like, is, this is my life okay this won't make any sense to you but probably 95 percent of people listening will understand i i literally landed in london took a city bus to this alley that he lives on uh, oh, are you serious like yeah, you yeah, went yeah. somewhere like he's on the show it's a uh, uh, richmond green it's right between the city and the airport uh, and I, I knew I was not going to be able to get back over there. So on the way into the city, I went and looked at the filming location and, you know, like took photos and like all this sort of stuff. Super cool. That is cool, man. That's really cool. I've done this in the I past love that too. kind of stuff. Yeah. Like I, uh, went to, this is like five years ago when I was in London, went to, uh, uh have you ever seen Shaun of the Dead? 
I have seen that. The pub in that movie? No, the oh. Win- not, not the Winchester, but you know his house. He walks from his house to the little corner shop. Mm, I don't remember this part. So he does it twice in the show. Like, in both times, he's just kind of, like, out of it, like, walking. Like, there's zombies walking around. Yeah, he, yeah. He doesn't yeah. even notice. So I found that house, and I found the shop, and I made that walk. I have a video of me making this walk, like, five years ago. That is such a cult classic thing to do. It's, it's, it's so awesome. So awesome to see. And, like, it probably looks different when you're there. But, uh, yeah, I went and saw the Ted Lasso Alley, did all, like, the London stuff. But... A, uh, a mutual friend of ours, like several years ago, gave me the idea to write down the names, not necessarily names, but the people that you talk to everywhere you go. So, and why, why do you do that? So these are just like, it's for me, it's a list of people that I ran into, I talked to, because I'll talk to anybody about anything at any time. Yeah. And like, it's just one of your better qualities. It's a, <laughs> it's my only quality. It's the only thing I got, <laughs> man. Only thing I got. But so I have this list of all the people that I've talked to on this uh, long European adventure. Uh, so like everyone from uh, these guys I ran to outside of McDonald's that were bumping chicken nuggets because I guess that's what. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. Like you would cheers uh, like drinks. They were like just bumping chicken nuggets. Is this a normal thing? It's like a TikTok no, thing. No, it's very. I just talked to him like, hey, what are y'all doing? Like, that's what they did. Uh had a guy try and sell me cocaine in Soho in London. Uh, so you definitely got his number. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I, I guess I got a look about me or something like that. But you do have a look about you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think this, like, I, it means nothing to anybody else but me, this list of people that I talked to throughout uh, my entire journey. But I think this is a great way to live your life in an organization, too. Just write down the names of everyone you talk to. And you can always revisit them at a later date just to understand your network, how you relate, and when you can tap them in the future for anything that you might need or they might need from you. I don't know what made me think of this, but you know that they actually do that with uh, everyone who the president talks to while they're a president. Like the National Archives actually saves like every single interaction that they have and any kind of like notes or memos that are sent just for like, you know, future historians. And so it's like, almost like you're your own proactive historian by what you're doing right now. Or you could say you're going to write your own good autobiography someday because you have this great kind of like ethnographic or anthropological diary that you've been keeping. Absolutely. Here, let me, let me see if I can find some of these people real quick. Just kind of highlight. You don't have to mention their names on the podcast. I, I collected almost no names. So like some of the more interesting folks I ran into were, uh, I, I took a train from Prague to Nuremberg and I got seated with, uh, it turned out to be three SDEs, software development engineer students mm-hmm. from Spain in a like, you know, four person little with a table in between. Yeah. Us. Yeah. Like a little Harry Potter chamber it, well, in the well, train. Not, not, not a, not a cabinet, but just oh. the, like the open table. And, um, they barely spoke English and I know a little bit of like Texas Spanish, you know what I mean? Yeah. The, and like the kind just, of Spanish they frowned upon in Spain. And like, <laughs> we, we, we started like, <laughs> yeah, probably so. Yeah. But we just started talking and like, we got stranded at this like little small train station in Germany. So it was like hang, hanging out. And we like carried on to because uh, we had to switch trains. We uh, carried on to uh, uh, Nuremberg. Uh, 
and then we you know parted ways because they were like off to spain or wherever and then met some people from canada at a uh beer garden in munich and like we had these like you know liter uh, several liter tall beers <laughs> oh, that's like beer fest beers right it, oh yeah it was at uh the hofbrau in downtown munich uh then we went to uh uh I, I, it's like some sort of outdoor beer garden okay super cool place too um but i, I left sorry to circle back uh, the, the, so there's the people I talked to on the journey, yeah, uh, which I think has applications for people in Linux. But I, I traveled from London to Copenhagen, which super cool city. Like everything's like from the 17th century. It's amazing architecture. All all I thought of was Copenhagen chewing tobacco. <laughs> That's the most Texas answer I could give to that. I can't think of a more polar opposite sort of <laughs> orientation. Yeah, between no. what I saw in Copenhagen and, and what I Copenhagen. just Copenhagen. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, but continue like, with your better and more enlightened <laughs> story. But like in in Copenhagen, like everything was like super efficient and like. So much so that uh, I don't know, people were like almost like kind of lackadaisical at times because everything just ran so well. Like they might be in your way and stuff, but kind of in a good way. And talk about like the most beautiful people on earth. Of course, from Scott Hines's perspective, like never seen. Like everyone's just like kind of Nordic and tall, and like the kids are like just super well behaved. The only ill-behaved child I saw, I was up in this place called like the Round Tower, and uh, he ran to the front, and this like Danish guy's like, no. Oh, Get back in line, this sort of stuff. Mm. And the little kid started speaking. He was freaking American. And I was like, God dang it. Oh. Of course. Of, of course, course he was American. But the beauty of what I saw there was everything was easy to understand for someone that did not speak the language. Right? Like all, I could understand all the signs. I could get anywhere uh, I wanted without much thought. You know, just because uh, uh, everything is just so well done. And it, it, it kind of draws you back to, uh, like, say you're building a selection instrument or any kind of survey. You don't want people to have to think about what you're saying. You want people to understand it right away without having to uh, explain it in complicated terms. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes perfect sense. It's one of the things that I've, talked about for years not just in the people analytics sphere but even going back to things all the way like operant conditioning mm -hmm. in psychology when people think about like trying to motivate or incentivize somebody to do something they always think about carrots and sticks and there's actually been a lot of research that shows if you want to motivate somebody to do something make it the easiest thing to possibly do totally right you don't have to incentivize them to do it you don't have to punish them for not doing it just make it the simplest thing to do and people, people are, are much, much more likely to do it. It got me thinking about uh, all these sort of like uh, uh, fluid intelligence tests that are out there where, uh, you know, it's essentially like symbols or this sort of stuff that are like easily to understand, even though those are abstract and you're trying to understand patterns typically. But is there a way that we could build some sort of instrument in the same way where you put the cognitive load as low as possible on people to draw the right kind of inferences. Of course, it becomes like really complicated when you're trying to, I don't know, I don't know how you convey like, are you engaged in like a, I don't know, a man running or something? Yeah. Well, the thing I always think about with some of those like- really The directions like, it's fixed, especially. Well, like working memory-based tests and things along those lines is 
what does a person do who's not paying attention very much? Right. Yeah. They're not necessarily, you know, less have less fluid intelligence. They're just literally not interested in what you're asking them to do. And that in itself shows like uh, a measurement error that I don't think is included in many of these tests. They just assume that those people, you know, have less cognitive abilities, which I think is really, really stupid. They, they assume low theta when it's yeah. really low attention, low mm-hmm. conscientiousness, maybe. Or even low motivation. There you go. They're like, I don't feel like doing this right now, or I don't want to do this right now, or I'm being coerced to do this. <laughs> you know, think like in the context of like elementary school students and taking like standardized tests and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I'm taking a test that I stand to benefit from in no way. And, uh, you know, but I'm doing it anyway. Imagine my effort level is probably a little bit lower than it would be if I wanted to do it. The other kind of interesting thing I saw there. So like it's, it's a city full of like, you know, the, the whitest people you ever met, et cetera, except for like the cruise boats that come and like dump off all the dumpy tourists, et cetera. But I, I, I saw, uh, I, I don't know where they're from. I mean, assume like Africa over there. Uh, this guy talking to a girl. Uh, on a bus and like it occurred to me that this african guy who's most likely a citizen mm-hmm. of copenhagen had way more in common with this people or like the entire danish people mm-hmm. than i do as a white guy as well so like i got to thinking about like how we cut our assessments and how we cut the data and does it accurately reflect Ooh. what we're getting at does that make sense because yeah like well, a lot of the times they talk about like cultural differences and their culture impacts these assessments. But what you're talking about is like there's layers to cultural differences that aren't accounted for by just like demographic characteristics. Yeah, we, we typically cut things by, say, race or yeah. gender, which, you know, the, I mean, we, we have a history in this com- country that uh, isn't always so great to talk about. But and there are cultural differences across these lines. Well, I'm even thinking of like global assessments, because a lot of times, like if you work in any kind of multinational company, you know, they're going to say, well, are there, you know, geographical differences? Yeah, in, absolutely. And how like, it, you know, how is this going to deal, especially if you deal with like any kind of Eastern culture, right? And, you know, obviously most of the companies I've worked for have like a Western culture bias. Yeah. Like how is the assessment going to cut across those different cultural differences? But absolutely within the United States, you know, we do have a history of, you know, treating different races differently and things like that. And that's, you know, not a glorifying part of our past for sure. So you got these like collectivist cultures from the East that, and so once again, it goes, it goes back to the other point around like building assessments Mm -hmm. that are culturally salient across different groups. And like, how can we reduce these biases? Yeah. Or even just like trying to find the, um, the components of an assessment that do have that are cross-cultural. Yeah. Whereas some things may be cultural context specific. Like, are there universals out there? And can you assess for those universals? Which gets into a really interesting debate I had at a previous organization where you, you have this issue of like um, organization specific validity that you're trying to receive or what we call least common denominator validity. Because if you're looking for universalism, you're minimizing a lot of the validity that you get that you might just be specific to what your organization's culture is trying to maintain, promote, or acquire. Wait, is this like climate versus culture? Not necessarily. It would be like the example I always used is 
remember like back in the day when Steve Jobs was at Apple and they said, we, you know, think different. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so what that saying is we value somebody who wants to challenge the status quo. That's a really narrow concept, right? Whereas conscientiousness is a very broad concept, right? And so, but when you're doing these kind of like universal assessments, what you end up with is a lot of very big, broad concepts rather than a very narrow concept that a particular yeah. organization might be interested in. That makes total sense. In, in that case, it would make more sense to say, cut it by specific groups that you know or strongly suspect have cultural differences as opposed to like these sort of large cuts in aggregate. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to your European trip though, because you were talking about like the applications to people analytics of thinking about like the list of people that you've made yeah. and the experiences that you have, like what would some of those applications be? Uh, as far as the people that you know? Yeah. Or just like looking at it through like, let's say like a third party omniscient viewpoint of like, like, hey, we're actually kind of studying Scott's trip. Yeah. How would we study it? You know, the things that came to mind for me, I mentioned it briefly earlier, is like ethnographic and anthropological types of studies, which are, from what I understand, are actually becoming more and more from the hipster people analytics perspective. Some of the cool kids in people analytics are doing some of these anthropological <laughs> studies. Maybe you want to check it out if you've never heard of it before, Scott. Uh, for, from my I'm saying that tongue in cheek for the audience, by the way. <laughs> from my perspective, is is largely around the network you build around you. Like, obviously, you know your strongest ties. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I know Cole. I know people at the office that I talk to all the time. But you lose sight of the other people around you, and they provide you valuable sources of information. And if you have a list of people that you know. You can quickly see like where there's holes in your network and where you're overextended. So, like uh, the, the example I like to use because I, I do a lot of network analytics is like if you know pe- five people in legal, you know essentially one person because they can tell you the same information. They're they're going to tell you redundant information anyway. Interesting. But if you know why, why is that? Uh, be- well, assuming that they all work closely together and they all kind of know the same sort of information. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, D- don't, don't say legal. Just say like one little group A. Yeah. There's like four people. A in cluster. A. Yeah, exactly. They all, they all talk closely with one another. They share information. They're all going to tell you about the same information because they're working on the same project. But if you know one person from group A, one person from group B, one group, person from group C, D, E, now you have a broad perspective of everything that's going on, but you have the same number of connections. Yeah. So from like a research or maybe even like you could say like an onboarding perspective, you could ask the question or hypothesize the question of what's the minimum number of people you need to know to get the maximum number of information? Oh, wow. There's a lot going on there. And um, it's something that uh, I know companies are trying to tackle, like mm-hmm. how to onboard people effectively and get them up to speed you know what time to contribution is a big thing in onboarding and just understanding the people around you and learning from them both uh tenured and senior folks as well as other new folks to help you understand the organizational culture from a new person's perspective and I don't know, it's like a friend group, you know, like people that can like kind of share war stories together. Well, I'm curious what you think about this because I've had an ax to grind on this for a while, Okay, which is the the Gallup's original engagement survey. Have you ever seen this? It's a 12 item survey. Um, 
I and probably what, have, but I, I don't know. Well, one of the questions on there, and I've picked on this for years, is do I have a best friend at work? Yeah, right? that's a different construct. It's a different construct, but it also what it does is it makes it impossible to be engaged if you're new. Because you don't it takes have time, time to build a best yeah. friendship. And so unless you know your best friend referred you and now you work on the same team as your best friend, it's almost impossible to be quote unquote engaged according to Gallup's measure if you haven't been there for probably years. Because again, it takes a while to build a best friendship. And you go back to like the pandemic sort of thing where it, well, it's hard to maintain or like build these relationships online. When again, you know, as this, the Directionally Correct podcast, we're huge fans of second order and third order consequences. One of the things that I think about from seeing those survey results, because again, we've actually done one of these surveys that comes out as one of the lower scoring items. And so the second order effect of, of that course. is how many HR programs over the last 20 years <laughs> yeah. about find a best friend at work have been created because of that stinking survey. So that's kind of my ax to grind with the Gallup, you know, engagement survey. Oh man. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that's a totally fair uh, criticism. I, I just like the, like the mental image of like an HRVP run into, I don't know, uh, Cole Napper and be like, Hey man, do you got a best friend? Yeah. Can I be your best friend? How can well, I get you a best friend? And I think kind of to go to the, you know, Malcolm Gladwell point from earlier, you know, the enlightened point I'm trying to make is that HR doesn't need to be known as the best friend party <laughs> yes. function. Absolutely. But the absolute point, which I think everybody is implicit and everybody understands, yeah, it's great to have a friend at work. You know, what I'm not saying is, oh, we shouldn't have best friends at work. Having a friend isn't a, isn't a good thing. What I am saying is it's really important when you're doing reliable and valid research that you think about the, the second order and third order consequences of what you're doing and are you validly measuring the construct you say you're measuring? Or just thinking critically about like what you're putting into a survey, which sometimes you see, I mean, like forget like double-barreled questions where it's like, are you uh, happy and satisfied with your job or something like that? Yeah. Uh, but you, you'll see these sort of things in surveys every so often. Or even, are you happy and stressed at your job? It's like, <laughs> how do I even answer that? Oh, it's an impositive measure at this point, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, good uh, IRT term there, right? <laughs> Item response theory for our audience who needs the translation. I showed truckers, as I like to think about yeah. But, you know, I, I left Copenhagen and went to Prague. Not a massive fan of Prague. Uh, I, knew, I knew it was trouble immediately because, like, our plane was coming in to land. Uh, short flight, Ryanair, super fine. I, I was really worried about it, but it, it was totally fine. Their planes crash often? No, but it, it was like a $40 ticket. You know what I mean? $40 to fly. Well, that's an interesting study. So what you're saying is if you pay too little for your ticket, you think that the odds <laughs> of your plane crashing increase. Well, <laughs> let, let me like Ryanair has a history. They have no skin in the game. I only paid $40. Like I was expecting, like chickens on the plane, you know, this sort of thing. But I yeah. mean, like in the past, like Ryanair's like floated the idea of like stand up seats. Oh, like a bus, sort of, like where you have to grab like a pole above your head. Just to... more. No, I think that probably whatever the FAA or whatever the equivalent is in Europe would probably shun this idea. But like, think about like a uh, gurney board standing up that you're strapped to, but you stand up. Yeah, I'm dead serious. Oh, like like 
like an ambulance. Like you get strapped to something in an ambulance, except they turn it upright like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, so you're standing up. Yes, a very good analogy. Very good analogy. So like just to fit even more people into the plane. And at that point, you're probably paying $25, you know, just for the experience. Yeah, to be strapped in to... But check this out. So we're coming into land, we touch down, and the pilot goes back up in the air, and we're all like, you know... That's not normal. WT fuck, you know? Like, yeah. what the hell's going on here? And, like, we're all, like, kind of looking at each other. <laughs> we're all looking at each other, and uh, the pilot comes on, and like, uh, yeah, there was a plane on the runway, so we had to, like, pull up. <laughs> like, so so they didn't know... There was a plane on the runway. I don't know. I, I guess he saw it. And like, and so, so this is the beginning of the journey. Uh, we, we get in. It, it's fine. The, the city is like, you can tell it was like under communist rule for a long time. There's still lots Which of. Which city was this again? A Prague. Prague. Prague, Czechoslovakia. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful city. Uh, otherwise. Otherwise, so I mean, you know, like castle up on the hill, this sort of stuff. And like, I was talking to this guy before I got on the plane, and like, we're like, just some guy from Chicago. He's like, you're comparing notes. He's like, you need to go up to this like monastery. They got a brewery. Mm-hmm. So I walked up there, and like, I, you know, it's like whatever. It's like way up on a hill. And then uh, I'm walking back, and I see this little uh, restaurant. I'm like, okay, that looks cool. Uh, so I stop in there, and I wound up going back twice because it was like, man, it's relatively cheap and like really good. But when I left, I stumble out the door and i look and uh you know who, uh taiko brahi is no do you know who uh uh johannes kepler is he's like soccer players or something <laughs> no no they're, they're both 16th century 1600s uh astronomers oh no i don't know and so uh, oh, is that like kepler isn't there a satellite called kepler yes very good so taiko brahi was the best known uh, uh, instrumentist. So he, he did really accurate um, measurements of the stars moving through the mm-hmm. system, planets rather. And uh, Kepler was the best theorist. Oh, the, the yin time. and yang. Exactly, exactly. But Tycho was an interesting person in the sense of like, he like lost his nose in like a duel when he's like young. So he had like a gold nose. But he'd like throw these like lavish parties. And like uh, Johannes Kepler, like wasn't about that life. He just wanted the data, and Tycho would never give it to him, right? So like you got this guy. Well, hold like, on, pause, pause okay. there for a second. Talk about something that's fallen out of favor. You know, people say eye patches have fallen out of favor. Gold <laughs> noses, really out of fashion nowadays. Let's start the revolution. <laughs> okay, get it going. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off there. No worries, but uh, so so like Tycho would like throw all these like lavish parties and like. Kepler, no time for this sort of nonsense. And he just won the data. And like Tycho is like a real dick about it. And like kind of give him like data on the slide. I, I, I read a lot of Carl Sagan. This is where I get this information. Um, <laughs> Clearly. So anyway, so Tycho dies. Kepler gets the data. He's trying to fit the, essentially the orbits of the planets into this data, trying to do a circular orbit. It's not working. It's like off by several minutes of arc. And it's just... He's like, throws his hands up there. I don't know what to do. And finally, he uh, or, like tries the formula for an ellipse. And it works. Ellipsis? Yeah. Is it ellipse? Yeah, whatever. I think ellipsis is a grammatical term, right? Syntax? I am not sure. Anyway, he, he tries it and he gets it and uh, it works beautifully. And then you, you know, like all sorts of great stuff about the universe and like how our solar system's going, this sort of thing. 
But the point is, I come out of this restaurant not knowing, and it's Taiko Brahi's house right outside the door. And I was like, holy shit. Holy shit. Look at this. This is so cool. And like, I see some Czech people. I'm like, look at that. And they don't, they're like, well, whatever. You know, we live here. We don't care. Uh, but my point is, like, if you understand the history of a city or your organization, it becomes the contact. It becomes way more interesting. It becomes way more interesting to understand the phenomenon, what's going on, the culture, etc. That is so interesting. I just wonder, like, how do? Because that, that's another thing that I've, I've written about in some of my articles. Is from a research standpoint, it's called temporal effects, Mm. but really it's kind of what you're saying, like organizational histories and like how things change over time and what, what effect does time have on an organization or the people who work at the organization? It's, it's a really understudied area. First of all, because longitudinal studies are really difficult to do, but like, what do you think the applications are of that type of methodology to an organization? Well, I think this gets back to what you're saying a while ago about anthropological research with an organization. Like you're essentially digging up the past, understanding what took place and what can happen in the future. In a simplistic view, it's nothing more than uh, what do SMEs have to say? And are we taking in their voice to generate our insights? You know, often we create a survey, you know, it's like, Oh, well, uh, the marketing department scored a 4.2 mm-hmm. and the IT department is a 4.25. Uh, you know, we got 10,000 people in each department. So that's significant. They're way different. Like, yeah. eh. When I even think about like a research experiment that I have never been able to adequately run, but I have so much curiosity about is like following a cohort of junior level people all the way that make it up to the executive level. Yes. And because what I, what I have seen is a lot of organizations, what they try to do is they go and ask executives, what were they like when they were a junior person? And the delta between what they remember they were like and what I bet they actually were Uh like is huge. Not to mention all the problems with survivorship bias of like all the people who were like them when they were junior, who fell out along the way for whatever reason. And even things like the role. They didn't of, have a best friend. Well, yeah, obviously, they didn't have a best friend, Scott. I mean, obviously. They, and obviously, that HR department didn't do their job creating the best friend program, right? Um, but if they had, you know, they would be executive someday. But the other part is, it's all of the people who fell out along the way who had all the same characteristics and the luck and happenstance that happened to be involved at every kind of like, let's call it phase shift that has to happen from like IC to manager and manager to manager of managers and manager of managers to like divisional president and divisional president to a chief something officer and chief something officer to CEO. You know, like all of those are huge phase shifts that have, and they're essentially tournaments, right? right? Where a bunch of people don't win the tournament. Well, what is it that makes those people win every single one of those tournaments along the way? And do they even have that linear pathway? Like, does anybody actually start like at the organization where they become chief executive or did they start somewhere completely different and then work their way up through 40 different companies and then become chief executive officer at somewhere else? I I, I wondered in the past, like, is there a, like a 22 year old that is just has the mindset, not necessarily the skill set, but, you know, the sort of orientation to be a CEO but because of their level of experience, et cetera, they are shuttled into 
oh, you're a data analyst sort of person or like, well, we're not going to trust you with the keys of the company. Totally valid sort of thing. I've talked to 22 year olds, myself included, and just like wouldn't trust you with the checkbook. Well, I mean, think of all the prominent, you know, Silicon Valley luminaries, like think like Mark Zuckerberg's. You start your own Imagine company. if Mark Zuckerberg had started at, you know, at Facebook. Yeah. Right. If Facebook was what it is today, they wouldn't, you know, automatically nominate him to be no. CEO. No, clearly. And, and the question, which I think is really what you're getting at, which I think is the most interesting is what if they weren't any good? Like what if, you know, they weren't even able to be successful yet they're able to run this company and like, are there things like, you know, I think about the, they call it like the Goldilocks zone, you know, are they too much of a good thing, not enough a good thing or just the right amount? You know, some of these people have like from a personality standpoint, really high or low scores on some scales. And if you look at the median type of employee, usually, usually they're, they're hanging around the middle of these scales. And so oftentimes the outliers are the ones that are kind of marginalized or pushed to the side. And perhaps those are the things that organizations need to win the race from a, an executive standpoint. You really do need those ends of the tails of the distribution for these sort of folks. I mean, like, I, I don't think people realize how much work even senior leaders put in. Like, it's not a 40-hour work week. I, 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 I've heard, you it's know. It's 35? Yeah, yeah, 35. And this came up earlier today around like we should experiment more with like a four day work week or 35 hour work week, but I, I digress. Um, we can talk about that in a future podcast because yeah, I think there's a whole area there to, to dig into. But I mean, like you, you have people that like are extreme intelligence, you got to be really intelligent, you got to be hyper motivated, you got to be willing to put your family aside. I mean, there's a lot of sacrifices that go into getting to the top of or near the top of a fortune 500 company and man there's only one maybe two top dogs at a company yeah it's hard to get to i don't know if people realize that obviously they do well it's not just it's not just hard it's there's almost luck. completely improbable oh yeah absolutely right i mean think about you know, if you like, what is it like 5% of people who apply to Harvard get accepted, you know, it's 0.00001% of the company who makes it to be CEO someday. And, you know, those odds are, I mean, gosh, you're more likely to probably get hit by a car on the way home than you are to, you know, be chief executive officer someday. And CEOs fail too, like tenured yeah. seasoned folks. They if you make like one bad decision, like that could be the end of it. That could be the end. Like the, the one I like currently is around, uh, it's not current by any means, but Blockbuster had the chance to buy Netflix, but they didn't believe in the- I actually watched that documentary. Really? Yeah, they made a documentary about that. Was it, was it good? Like, no, it wasn't. Because uh, I thought it was going to be about like current Netflix people, but it was all like people who don't work at Netflix anymore, but were there at the very, very beginning of Netflix. And it was really like a- shit on blockbuster documentary <laughs> well they're, thought, they're dead now yeah yeah it's like come on you know kicking people while they're down you know they don't even exist anymore it's like oh netflix, netflix is so superior, superior. It's, it's like, like well obviously you still exist you know i thought it was kind of jerky of them to do that honestly well i mean like netflix isn't immune either like they're in the same boat where from what i understand like they're getting their lunch eaten too i mean because uh well, that's the effects of the pandemic. Hulu can come up with a screaming 
streaming service, uh, Amazon, yeah. uh, HBO, Disney, they all have these streaming services and you have just fewer dollars to spend on Netflix. See, but that, that um, I think that's actually an invalidated point. And the reason why from like a research design perspective is those competitors still existed like last year or the year before. Yes. But the subscribers started significantly falling off more recently. And I think it's probably due to two things because I've, I've actually looked into this a little bit. Okay. And it, it's, it's due to people's behavior changing of like actually going back to their normal lives. That's probably the biggest contributor. Post-pandemic, mm-hmm. no longer need 40 yep. hours of TV a week. And then the second contributor, which is, this is not my opinion. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry if you have any listeners, listeners at Netflix, Netflix, but it's, it's that the quality of their programming has gone down. That's what I understand as well. Like yep. you put out a lot of material, which, hey, that's great that you have a lot of content, but it needs to be quality content. But I want to come back to CEOs failing for a Ooh, second. Okay. Because there's another kind of hot topic, sort of like the uh, Malcolm Gladwell thing that happened recently that also happened, which is this crying CEO. Have you seen this? I haven't seen this. What, 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 what is this about? So again, I don't even know the name of the company or the, the guy, but apparently on LinkedIn, a CEO of some, you know, probably tech firm uh, posted a long post about how they're laying off a significant portion of their employees <laughs> and then posted a picture with it of them very, it looked very staged. Yes. And, but also in the lighting was really weird and it almost looked like some of the crying was Vaseline or something like that, but of them crying oh, no. profusely about how sad they were that they had to lay off all of these employees. And obviously, as you might imagine, the online response was, was very, very negative. negative. <laughs> like, you know, like oh, who is no. this? And cause it's like, there was, I feel like there was like a South Park episode. Remember when the BP oil spill happened? And yes. there was like a South Park episode where like the, the, the CEO was like, we're sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. It was so disingenuous. Right. And so they're mocking how disingenuous it was. I feel like this is like the modern day version of that South Park episode. Cause it's like, wow, you took the worst day in a lot of people's lives and you made it all about yourself. <sighs> Way to go, dude. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the authenticity is self-evident un- unless you are a freaking psychopath. Well, here's the thing. I bet you he thought he was being authentic. You think so? Or I it's bet not you like, he, I, this is what I need to and do. And he may have even worked with like a public relations firm or something to show his authenticity. I'm going to cry on social media just to show how everybody how authentically upset I am. And so that's where I actually think, again, kind of the Goldilocks effect, you know, like, Maybe too much of a, maybe too authentic is not a good thing. I know uh, Tomas, and I can't pronounce his last name, uh, but he's a social science researcher. He used to work at Hogan. I think he, he's yeah, at like yeah. uh, University College of London in Columbia. He publishes a few books and stuff like that. He's talked about like how being authentic at work, and he's got research to support this, is actually probably a bad thing overall for most people. Um, and so, you know, I think maybe the CEO of that company could take some of that advice. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder if he, I assume it's a he. It's a he. It's a he. He felt like pressured into, like, it's like prerequisite to deliver this sort of message. Like, it's not enough anymore that I can just, like, lay off half the company and say my own ass. I have to, like, show that I am empathetic, go through the motions. Yeah. 
I mean, again, kind the, of the, the like, Vaseline tears is a bit much. Granted, sure, it it would just look weird. Like I don't know how to describe it. It looked like something had been doctored. We'll have to find this a link to a photo yeah. or something. Um, we we can put it in the show notes. No, yeah. I don't know. I think most people have probably already seen it. But um, well, the thing about it is, to me, and just to give the kind of the charitable point of view again, kind of like we did with Malcolm Gladwell earlier, I'm sure the guy probably is upset. I'm sure he probably felt bad about mm. it, and I'm sure there probably was some parts of what he was trying to do that came from a good place, right? And it's just, it's just kind of tone deaf is really, I think what, what it comes down to is again, it's, it's about, about putting, putting the, the mirror, mirror back, back on yourself, yourself rather than on the people who got affected. And again, I imagine like to be charitable to all the people in the audience who reacted negatively, it's like, yeah, they rightfully said, like a lot of people probably had a CEO who laid them off before and they're like, Look at this dude, you know, doing what that person who did to me in the past and probably reacting negatively. But they also probably shouldn't have piled on so much because, <laughs> you know, they, again, they probably legitimately ruined that CEO's life. And I wouldn't be surprised if he like steps down from his company eventually just because of this. Man, it's a tough world out there, too. Uh, I mean, this, that could affect your uh, recruiting efforts in the future, which really affects your ability to select high quality talent uh culture of the company obviously at stake all the way up yeah well just um, and i think we're kind of getting near the end here i want to say quick you know we've done a few episodes with guests now honestly i think it's been amazing to be able to talk to so many great people recently and i i, I would love personally and i'm sure you feel the same way scott i would love personally to hear from audience do you like the colin scott episodes like we're actually considering doing these a little bit more often what do you guys think? Is this, uh, you know, do you like kind of the really laid back, chill? This is a Friday night, Colin Scott talking in Texas, or do you want the more, you know, having the guest who's going to have a really interesting point about some other topic? Like, you know, Renee was amazing on crypto. Renee was great. Amy was amazing on data privacy. Yep. Tyrone was awesome on the future of work. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Seku talking about how they do things in business school. I learned a whole heck of a lot from him. And so I just feel like we have an amazing set of guests. But do you like hearing from us? We'd love to hear from you. I just want to say that I, I think that uh, going back to Seku, I, I would describe our audience as a uh, tribe called Quest. <laughs> maybe yes. uh, DMX, maybe Method Man. That's, that's how I describe. Dude, that was so embarrassing to me. <laughs> I still think about that because he put me on the spot and I was like, I don't know any 90s you know, hip hop bands. And Dig I didn't want to sound baby. silly. So it's like deflected and it was like really stupid, but we have to have him back on to uh, chat about this. And again, like, and we we probably will at some point, but like, I mean, I like, you know, Tupac and Biggie, but Uh I mean, again, if I say it, it just sounds embarrassing coming out of my (laughs) mouth because like immediately I'm going to be like an idiot. But I think at this point in the podcast, we should probably wrap up. Scott, any final words? No, man. It's great to see you. Uh, More to come. Absolutely. Well, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott. Thanks for joining us.